Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, it's David Avern, and welcome to the Why Customers Leave podcast. You know, everyone in business serves an audience. Some call them customers. Others might call them clients or guests or associates or constituents. And in healthcare, we call them patients, of course. And at different times, we are all one of those consumers on the buying side of the equation. We're all consumers as well, right? Well, my guest today is here to talk about the ways that we access healthcare today and how a new generation of physician entrepreneurs is redefining patient engagement and the patient experience. I'm talking with Dr. Arlen Myers, President and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. I'm David Averin, and this is the Why Customers Leave podcast, back in 20 seconds. Are you ready to future-proof your business? Well, sit back, because customer experience expert David Averin brings you the Why Customers Leave podcast. Featuring outspoken thought leaders and business builders as they share their creative strategies for serving a new generation of customers and clients. Listen in, or you can watch the video version of the conversation. Now, here's David Averin. Thanks and welcome again to the Why Customers Leave podcast. Great opportunity for me to talk about uh, how we engage as consumers, as business owners, entrepreneurs, and different aspects of our life within different realms. Uh, as, as I said in the introduction, you know, sometimes we are the provider and sometimes we're the consumer. And it, and it takes so many different forms. I think one of the most significant changes post-COVID is what's happened to healthcare. And what a lot of people don't realize is that healthcare had begun many of those changes far before that. I, I, I look back in my career in the early part in my 20s. Uh, I worked in healthcare for several years. I was PR director at Children's Hospital. I worked at the Denver City Health Department, and I lobbied at our state legislature for, for health issues. Back then, they were talking about telemedicine. Um, it's sort of in the way of how do you approach and serve rural areas? How can somebody maybe on the other side of the planet with a computer and robotic arms do surgery? We think about how much has changed since then. And of course, accelerated in many ways because of COVID. Well, my guest today, Dr. Arlen Myers, um, who is a colleague who I've known for, for over 30 years, uh, ha has been that person who has, has been everything on the, from the clinical side to the teaching at the medical side and now on the entrepreneurial side. Let me give a quick, do his quick introduction so I can do this justice and then we'll say hi. Um, Dr. Myers is Professor Emeritus of Otolaryngology and Dentistry and Engineering at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and the Colorado School of Public Health. And he's president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. He helps people get their biomedical ideas to patients by teaching, working, and working with entrepreneurs and leading a global not-for-profit biomedical and clinical innovation and entrepreneur network. That is a, a mouthful. Dr. Myers, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good Absolutely. You. you know, um, I would love to talk about because we look in different realms. And of course, I'm on that business side of saying, how can organizations, businesses in all these different realms provide a better experience? But you come from a really unique perspective where you really understand what patient engagement looks like and how that might differentiate 
from experience. Tell us a little bit about your 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 background and and your perspective on on how we're serving and how we're accessing care today. Sure. So uh, the short version, as you mentioned, is my first career was as an academic ear, nose, and throat surgeon uh, at the University of Colorado. I did that for many, many years. And then uh, I pivoted and changed my sort of career transition to what I would call an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, my, my, a team that I was part of invented a gadget that optically detects cancer in the mouth. And that led down a road where I was clueless. I had no idea what to do with this idea. No one was helping me. I didn't have education. I didn't have any skills, any of that. So that led to my next idea or uh, transition was, well, I guess we're going to need to teach people how to do this. So that's how I wound up now doing what I'm doing, which is educating, consulting, and running the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. So talk to us about throughout your experience, and you've seen change after change, but not just on the clinical side, not just the advancements in terms of of diagnostic capabilities, but in terms of how we access care and how on the care side, care is provided. Talk to us about some of those milestones and what brought us to care. Right, so my view is that we're presently experiencing what I call sick care 4.0. So first of all, we don't have a healthcare system We have a dysfunctional uh, uh, sick care system of systems in the United States. We spend now 4.3 trillion, more than any country in the world. We arguably get the least uh, value from outcomes of any industrialized country in the world. And it's just continuing to get bigger and bigger and bigger. We're causing all kinds of problems. what has happened over the brief history, and you know, this is like the Guido Sargucci five-minute university. So here's, here's the five-minute university on the history of healthcare in the United States. So it starts off with basically private practice, people running around in buggies, getting trick paid with chickens, and that kind of thing. That then morphed into hospital-based um, integrated delivery networks, a social transition of care that was basically described by Paul Starr in a book, The Social Transformation of American Medicine in the 70s. Then that evolved into corporate care. So now we see all sorts of corporate consolidations and corporations, for-profit corporations running systems. And that's the third evolution. And now I think we're in the realm of what I call sick care 4.0, which is retail care. So you see CVS, you see Google, you see App, you see everybody under the sun that's running a retail enterprise, including what I call Amazon, because Amazon Prime is now all over the place in terms of sick care delivery. So we're in a realm of retail sick care. And how we and that creates a different mindset. So I think in terms of patient engagement how you engage and the reason you engage the end user, however you define them, uh, has a big impact. And it basically determines budgets, processes, impact, results, engagement, et cetera, experience, et cetera, et cetera. But let me ask you a question. I mean, let's talk about the differences between sort of patient engagement and patient experience. I read an article that you wrote um, eight years ago, where you were talking about this specifically, that on the patient engagement side, 
the importance of that, that, that ultimate goal of, of positive clinical outcomes. How do we empower the individual as opposed to an organizational responsibility, the individual on the provider side, the individual on the patient side, and right. working collaboratively and educating them to create a great outcome. The experience is something different, right? That's how do we as consumers right. access the system. Are you finding those two goals at odds in that 4.0? Are you finding a, a stress in the system where providers are, are pressured in terms of time, um, harder and harder to get access because there's a cost involved? Yes. So you have an inside I, view. Yeah. So here's the view. Um, first of all, I think that the, the objectives of, of retail medicine, for example, when you measure engagement, if you're an e-commerce marketer, you're measuring engagement by the number of clicks and the click-throughs and the dwell time and all these other social media metrics. If you're measuring engagement in sick care, it's really not just about as you inferred education. Education does not change behavior. So the importance of engagement, and incidentally, this applies to doctors as well. The holy grail is to change doctor and patient behavior. Right. Because patients and doctors aren't doing the right thing now, in many, many instances. In the case of doctors, they're doing things they shouldn't do. They're not doing things they should do. And the same applies for patients. So if you take, for example, the U.S. Preventive Task Force outlines maybe five or six things every American should do to stay well. Diet, exercise, relaxation, seat belts, don't on a gun. The number of people who actually do that is less than 10%. So we have a long way to go to change patient and doctor behavior. And how you get there has to work through a series of interventions. It starts with education, which in my opinion is the least important part of the ultimate engagement outcome. That is changing behavior. Education then results in experience. In other words, how do I feel about how you're, quote, telling me or selling me on what I need to do? And this applies to vaccination compliance. It applies to COVID vaccine. Right. You name it. It's any public health initiative. So it starts with education. It goes to experience. And that leads to engagement. In other words, am I now beginning to understand and adopt awareness, intention, decision, action? Am I beginning to think, gee, maybe I need to change what I'm doing? And then the final E, and I call this the four E's, is enablement. How do you enable a person to change their behavior once they've decided they want to do it? Okay, but here's a challenge. Or you tell me. I'm, I'm not going to put this on you. Um, I'm going to let. You, I, I'm interested in your perspective. We are in a culture right now of of silver bullets. We're looking for shortcuts for everything. You watch the infomercials. You can rock, rock, rock the pounds away. You can be on the chocolate pudding diet. But it is it's manifesting in almost every purchase decision that we're making, whether it's food or services and others as well. When you talk about sick care, which I, I think is very much the challenge, people come in when there's a problem. Right? They come in because they search something up on Google, fix this problem, as opposed to making those decisions. And too often, as we are later in life, we're wishing that we did. How are doctors, how is, is, is medicine with a big M, how is the industry approaching, I mean, the, the universal wisdom in terms of what it takes for us to, we've known this for a long time, to get healthy. 
But are you challenged now? Are, are healthcare providers challenged by people wanting a quick solution, wanting the pill, wanting the, the easy answer and not willing to do the hard work? So the short answer is yes, but you're asking the wrong person. In other words, and the fact that you use the term provider is a reflection of viewing patients as customers, in my opinion. So what you really should be asking is in a highly regulated industry that has fought a 100 years war on sick care reform, that is universal coverage and payment, it goes back to the progressive era and, and Teddy Roosevelt. And there's a very good book actually called The 100 Years War on Sick Care Policy, which I'd suggest. But the short version is we haven't gotten there yet. And the problem is that, uh, you know, the change in the system and what will ultimately drive behavior change is not something a doctor talks to a patient about in the examining room. It happens in hearing rooms in Congress. In other words, you have to change the rules to change sick care to health care. It starts with changing the rules because rules, that is particularly reimbursement, coverage, insurance, uh, uh, incentives to do the right thing, all that stuff, regulation, it starts in the hearing room and, and ultimately results in legislation. The legislation then creates ecosystems. Ecosystems create business models and business models drive compliance and incentives. So it has to start, in my opinion, with rules change. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that Pollyannish? I mean, certainly in the political environment that we're dealing with right now, um, where we're as in terms of timing, because the, these podcasts are a little evergreen. Uh, we've got one party controlling one house, another one controlling the other in the presidency, and neither of them will allow each other to pass anything. And does it require a measure of collaboration, a greater measure of collaboration to even seeing that? And, it, and it, Yes. So the short answer is, is it Pollyannish? No. Does it take a long time to create change at this level? Of course. It's taken a hundred years to get to where we are now. Right. And oh, and oh, by the way, it takes on average about 17 years for a healthcare discovery to ultimately become the standard of care. So this is not a short-term fix. You have to take the long view. That doesn't mean you don't do it. Right. It just and where are we in the process? Are the are the are the forces in place to advocate to be able to quantify the benefit? and the, uh, the dangers of, of inaction, are those yes, yes, forces? Yes, because, so for example, the latest poll indicated that roughly 55% of Americans were dissatisfied with the sick care system. Sure. Every person listening to this podcast, I guess, has had a horrible experience with the sick care system or has a relative who has. I mean, it's, it's just, pervasive. You know, it's, it's pervasive. Yeah. Number number two, uh, the numbers favoring. Now, I'm not I'm not an advocate or a dissenter as far as universal coverage. Do I think that's a good idea? Maybe depends on you know the devil's in the details. But the vast percent, the vast majority of Americans now favor what they perceive to be single payer. In other words, government covered care. Right. And we can get into the reason. It's an option. Right. We're seeing states 
trying to do this. Some have been successful, some have been unsuccessful, like Colorado. And so more and more, we're beginning to see, and as people increasingly go bankrupt from medical bills, which is the, the number one cause of the personal bankruptcy. So I think, and, and ultimately, people are fed up at some point with the political gridlock. They just want folks to fix things. Right. So I, I think eventually we'll get there. Whether I live to see it, who knows? But I do think we're going to get there. And that's really one of the reasons we created the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs was to empower people to change the system through the deployment of innovation and entrepreneurship. And to make a good living bringing those products to market, which is do the- well by do, do well by doing good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about if, if we are subjected to the reality that we have today, we can certainly be, um, be advocates for the kinds of change. Um, realists in terms of what it's going to take to make that happen. But I, I like when you talk about sort of we shifting in sort of the retail, the retailization of, of healthcare, at least the services provided. I'll give you an example. An hour and a half ago, I had to go do a quick blood draw. My physician, who I actually am working with out of out of plan for, for something separate, said, go do a blood draw. And I went to a, a, a lab place and there's a single kiosk and people are struggling to get their information. And I'm ninth in line thinking I've got to get back for this podcast. And there are four people at the front desk who would and could not help or, or could not help anybody. We'd ask, can you, can you check some people? You got to go through the kiosk, right? So here's a separate small company creating their own systems for that, that patient experience. The engagement comes later on. Where are you seeing some of the most beneficial advancements in access? And where are some of the bottlenecks or maybe un unanticipated bottlenecks? Right. Well, the good news is that, you know, the CDS is the, the, uh, the minute care inside or the clinics, the minute clinics inside of, for example, Safeway or a, a grocery store or something like sure. that. I mean, that is... It's, it's, it's shifting the value proposition of sick care, in my opinion, from quality to convenience, affordability, and experience. So it was things which people like me never paid attention to while paying, while taking care of patients. The physician mindset is 99% about quality. Right. Am I doing the right thing? What are my outcomes compared to whatever? It's really not about the experience, et cetera. Affordability, we, we're, as I said, we're concerned, but clueless. Ask your doctor how much this is gonna cost. You're not gonna get a straight answer. And if you do, it's probably wrong. So it's just not something that was part of the, of the physician mindset. Now it has to be. If you are going to be successful in the practice of medicine, and you ignore these things, you're not, as I said, if you don't pay attention to the business of medicine, you have no business practicing medicine. You will eventually go out of business. But let so me ask you this, it, but is it also a response to a need for easy, quick access for some of the more pedestrian kinds of things? I remember when my, my kids were all student athletes, I could right. go to the grocery store, get their physical so that right. they could participate in sports. We can get right. the flu shot. Does that not serve an important role of not bogging down 
um, in, in sort of a traditional triage system of yes. blogging down for what really is needed for the more yeah. intensive collaborative approach. Right. So that falls under the category of unbundling primary care. You can't be all things to all people. I mean, you can't, you know, you can, but it's terribly inefficient. Right. And it does not maximize the value of a doctor. It wastes their time, frankly, given the present environment. And that is the part of the advantage of retail medicine, as long as you understand that what you are being treated for in a retail environment is pretty much low acuity care, prevention, vaccinations, having blood drawn, getting a test, something like that. If you have chronic kidney disease with six other morbidities, you're not going to a retail clinic. So it's it, it, so it has to be segmented. And in my view, not only does primary care have to be unbundled internally, I actually think we need two separate systems. We need a sick care system and we need a health care system. I don't believe doctors can do both. They're simply not trained to do it, whether it's population health, preventive medicine, et cetera, and they don't get paid to do it. Right. So I think it's unrealistic to burden a physician and hold them accountable for doing that. I just don't think that's doable. So ultimately, I think we're going to see a segmentation of the two systems. And oh, by the way, I think the next phase of the evolution of medicine will probably be do-it-yourself at-home care. We're already seeing that. Yep. Hospitals at home. I mean, now you can pretty much take care of yourself on the internet. Ultimately, I think we're going to see radiology at home. We're going to see lab tests at home. I even think we're going to see surgery at home. So oh, we're not done yet. This, this thing is going to continue to evolve. And that's going to place a lot of challenges in front of, not the least, the medical education establishment, because how do we teach residents and medical students how to do this? Well, and you're, you're saying massive disruption in industries where one, I think people are taking very much um, off uh, off guard. Uh, and, and I know you do a lot with the sort of the cranial facial and, and taught dentistry as well. Probably the best example is Invisalign, which gave way to Smile Direct Club. I mean, Invisalign allowed other practitioners who weren't necessarily orthodontics to do right. orthodontics, and now you don't need to see a doctor at all. Right. And they'll and and right, and they'll and they'll pay lip service. You'll see somebody online, right. but I, I can't imagine graduating today from medical school as an orthodontist right. and turning on a, tea, a commercial for Smile Direct Club. But as we talk about online, and and I think we could do a whole conversation about what surgery might look like at home. It's mirroring a lot of other industries, though, right? I mean, we're, we're being asked and being empowered to self-triage, right? If we think it's something basic, we can go to that right. aspect and maybe right. unburden, or maybe we couldn't get in for right. six weeks for our primary care for something more in-depth. In, in, in right. The Is analogy, that, yeah, the analogy, this, this applies particularly to Gen Z. Um, it's, it's just a different generational mindset. You know, sure. they, they're, they're used to looking up stuff, everything online and chat GPT and you name it. So, and what I call this is over-the-counter medicine. So back in the day, if you wanted a prescription for something, you had to have a doctor write the prescription. Now there's a process for converting these prescription drugs to over-the-counter. You just go and you buy them online. I'm thinking, so I'm, I'm foreseeing and, and saying that we're sort of already in that phase where you can take care of yourself online without a prescription. Now, 
Absolutely. There's a a downside to DIY medicine. In other words, and there are perils of people taking care of themselves, not the least of which is they make the wrong diagnosis, they do the wrong thing, they take stuff they shouldn't take, they're they're, uh, uh, misled with misinformation and false advertising about things. So it's going to, it's happening now. We just need to be sure for the sake of improving patient outcomes that they understand the risks and the benefits of DIY medicine. Let's talk about one of the challenges with that, which is, which is confirmation bias, right? Of course, the promise of the internet was with all of this new information, we would become much more knowledgeable, much more empowered. And now we retreat into our camps. If you are an anti-vaxxer, you, there are not enough hours in the next thousand years to consume all the content that will validate your opinion. How has this been a struggle? I saw online, there was a, a, a meme and it showed a, in a doctor's office and it was a picture of a Google logo. And it said, it was on the doctor's office wall. And it said, my medical degree is worth more than your Google search. But it's not just a Google search. It's the erroneous information. It's the dangerous information. I mean, there there, there are a thousand sites that prove beyond a doubt in their contention that the world is flat. It's the same thing. There's a danger in that. Talk about that. Right. So the danger, the danger is, is, as you implied, is the misinformation, not necessarily the information. And for example, if, and let's get back to patient engagement and why whatever you call these people, customers or patients leave. It has to do with, as you said, uh, confirmation bias. Um, Basically, people buy emotionally and justify rationally. So it really, and in the age of artificial intelligence, we know what trips your emotional triggers to buy. So if I'm trying to sell you, quote, or to treat you, quote, I know what's going to trip your trigger. All you have to do is look at, at, at things that don't necessarily have demonstrated benefit to treat your ailment. Now, I don't want to get into the, I mean, we could get into the conversation of vitamins, nutraceuticals, magnetic bracelets, you name it. We, we all know this, and some would argue digital health is snake oil. So what is real and what is snake oil? And why is it that some people, patients, customers, whatever you call them, buy your product? Because it trips an emotional trigger. And that is informed by your experience, confirmation bias, all the other stuff. So that's why I'm saying that whether you perceive a patient as a patient or a patient as a customer determines how you will market and engage them. It's and a great, you might pers- like, it, you, yeah, you might a great perspective. Like, yeah, you might not like that. You may like it. I don't know. But it, it, that's what we're seeing. And incidentally, the United States, for example, is only one of two countries in the world that allows TV pharmaceutical advertising. The other is New Zealand. But how many doctors do you see on television, unlike lawyers, advertising their latest femtech thing that they don't do it and there's a reason for it and it has to do with the culture of medicine not the least of which state board of medical examiner regulations and oversight concerning truthful 
advertising by a healthcare right. profession. Well, and it's constraints that are Im imposed upon people who are truly in the healthcare profession who've taken the Hippocratic Oath that don't apply to those who may believe in their heart of hearts, though there is no clinical evidence to support that, or they can't make those claims to the FDA, that this particular erectile dysfunction pill or this test, it's got testophen, which of course means not testosterone, right? And the dirty little secret in medicine is doctors don't like it when other doctors say I'm better than you. Right. They simply don't like it. And then, right. and I've, I've had that experience. I've had doctors pull me over in a hallway and say, what makes you think you're so good? Literally. So it's a culture. It's, it's, it's what happens inside. So consequently, when you grow up to be a doctor, you don't do it. But yeah. I'm not necessarily sure that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying that it is what it is. Well, and we look at sort of the convergence from a consumer perspective, and I'm absolutely going to use the terminology. We're patients. In this context, we are patients. But people see themselves as patients in a naturopathic environment. They see themselves as patients because they believe enough websites and I'm not going to do chemo and I'm just going to do right. and I don't want to stoke anything, whether it's prayer or vitamins or those other things that, that people believe in their heart and of hearts. And there's enough evidence in some realm that will help them believe it. But there's the, the convergence is interesting because I work with so many different industries. We are consumers of of healthcare. Um, there, there are, are new easy access, and then there's things that make things more difficult. So it's, 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 it's something I would, would love to, to touch base from time to time. Uh, I think from the consumer perspective, we're, it's, it's the same across industry. We're looking for ease and, and simplicity and, and confidence and convenience, which well, is that, challenging. Well, that's, well uh, th those are different value factors that different patients want. You, yeah. you, can't, you can't just say everybody wants that. They sort, I mean, does everybody want a, a, a decent patient experience? Sure. Sure, right. But when it comes to, for example, when it comes to choosing a doctor, doctors basically do two, three, two, three things. They make decisions, they do, they, they do procedures and, uh, 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 things and they communicate, empathize, bedside manner, whatever you right. call it. Patients are different. Some will say, you know what? And I've had people tell me this. I don't care that you're a cold fish. I heard you're a good diagnostician and a good technician. Okay, great. I am what I am. I think it's pretty hard to be a triple threat. But other people will say, this guy is impossible. He doesn't listen to me. He doesn't talk to me. He doesn't, he spent five minutes talking to me. I wouldn't go to him if he were the last doctor on earth. Okay. So right. you, so not everybody wants the same thing. And oh, by the way, there are certain patients that will say, this guy charges a fortune. He must be much better than everybody else. Right. Perception of quality. Yeah. Right. What, what, what's interesting also is, is almost the level of care dictates that as well. For my pediatrician, for when my kids were small, I wanted somebody who was had a great bedside manner, who could talk my kids through their vaccinations. Right. I'm going in for surgery on uh, on, on a on a sensitive body part. I want swagger. I want to see that surgeon 
hang up his his cape and sword as he walks into that ER. <laughs> I don't care about the arrogance at, at that point. Um, it, it's well. Listen, we could talk forever. It, it's fascinating to look at, at at the changes of how we access care. Certainly, the growth, the the face to face virtual visits that um, I was doing before because I travel extensively. My healthcare is through Kaiser, and because I'm in Colorado, it's just a few states. So that 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 teledoc has been part of my life for a lot of years. But for a lot of people, this is a new thing. And it's preventing people from having to having to go into the office and all those well. So look, real quickly, a couple of minutes left. Let me do a quick speed round for you and, okay. and, and give me quick answers on these things. Would it be beneficial for medical students to be required to take business classes as well? Yes. And in fact, in fact, we are we are working very hard to do that. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we saw that for years, a lot of them who are in practice, they're very good at the clinical side, but they were not told how to, here's how to buy the equipment and set up the practice as well. Um, tell me, in your opinion, the best and worst things um, about virtual doctor visits face-to-face, what's the best part of it? What's the worst part about it? Um, the best part is convenience. The worst part about it is that uh, there are some things that just simply are not amenable to telemedicine. And my specialty in ENT is, is an example. If you look at the specialties that use telemedicine, ENT is very down on the list because if you have a, a, a laryngeal or a voice problem, I can't tell you what's going on unless I can put a scope in your nose and look at your voice box. And generally, you can't do that via telemedicine. Absolutely. Uh, what do you think is, is a growing unrealistic expectations of Americans specifically in terms of their about their healthcare what what are, what are the most unrealistic expectations um that the us healthcare spend will diminish over the next 5 years <laughs> that every year we say it is an unsustainable increase in gdp spend that is not going to happen in my opinion in the foreseeable future and the, the only as, as i said the only way go ahead the only no, way you go ahead. change the only way we're going to change that is through legislation and rules. Do you see the, who do you see leading that conversation in your work with the entrepreneurial community within healthcare? Um, do you see that as a, as a group of, of outliers, more creative ways of looking at how do we deliver? How do we create the technologies yes. and the delivery systems outside of the traditional hospital-based yeah. system? Right. Another unrealistic expectation is that sick care can be fixed from inside. People like me are people that contributed to the problem, and now you're expecting me to solve it. The fact of the matter is that almost no industry can be fixed from inside, and changes in sick care will come from outside of sick care, as you're seeing now. Aerospace, nano, IT, artificial intelligence, nanomaterials, Media, technology, all that stuff, that's what's informing, and retail, that's what's informing the change. So I tell people, if you want to see innovation in healthcare, don't go to a medical meeting. Is it because there's a financial incentive to do so? It's because, it's, it's, of those. because it's the largest industry in the United States, and $4.3 attracts a lot of pigs to the trough. Who are very protective of that trough. Yeah. And people that don't want to give up their vested interest. Understandable. Dr. Arlen Myers, 
I love these conversations. I spent the first 10 years of my career in healthcare, in healthcare communications. So for me, revisiting all of this is fascinating. If people want to learn more about you and learn about the Society for Physician Entrepreneurs, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so the best way is to get to me on LinkedIn. I'm always, you know, sort of all over the internet. I'm pretty hard to ignore. And the second is that the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs is at www.sopenet.org. It's an open innovation network, so you don't have to be a doctor or a surgeon or a health professional to join. And if somebody that has some sort of services or support or interest in that, it's a great organization. I'm, I'm a member of it as well. Um, Dr. Myers, thanks for being with us. Hang on. I'll talk to you on the other side. I just want to uh, remind everybody you can pick up a copy of my new book, The Morning Huddle, Powerful Customer Experience Conversations to Wake You Up and Shake You Up and Win More Business. In fact, all of my books that are strategically located next to my head are available on Amazon. Some of those in other languages an audio book and everything else as well. Be sure to subscribe, click to like this podcast, leave a comment and click the little bell. You'll receive notifications. We have new episodes here for the new season. Thanks for tuning in once again to the Why Customers Lead podcast. Big thanks to my guest, Dr. Arlen Myers. I'm David Averin. Be good. This has been the Why Customers Leave podcast with David Averin. Be sure to leave a comment and click the like button. You can listen to or watch past episodes and be notified of future ones by hitting the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform or check them out on David Averin's YouTube channel. David's popular books are all available online and also in Kindle and audiobook form as well. You can learn more about David's keynote speaking and business consulting at davidaverin.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.